0: Chapter 10 of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Klett, Houston, Texas, February 2008. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter 10 A PERILOUS PASSAGE IN THE SLAVE GIRL'S LIFE After my lover went away, Dr. Flint contrived a new plan. He seemed to have an idea that my fear of my mistress was his greatest obstacle. In the blandest tones, he told me that he was going to build a small house for me, in a secluded place, four miles away from the town. I shuddered, but I was constrained to listen, while he talked of his intention to give me a home of my own, and to make a lady of me. Hitherto I had escaped my dreaded fate by being in the midst of people. My grandmother had already had high words with my master about me. She had told him pretty plainly what she thought of his character, and there was considerable gossip in the neighbourhood about our affairs, to which the open-mouthed jealousy of Mrs. Flint contributed not a little. When my master said he was going to build a house for me, and that he could do it with little trouble and expense, I was in hopes something would happen to frustrate his scheme. But I soon heard that the house was actually begun." I vowed before my Maker that I would never enter it. I had rather toil on the plantation from dawn till dusk, I had rather live and die in jail, than drag on from day to day through such a living death. I was determined that the Master, whom I so hated and loathed, who had blighted the prospects of my youth, and made my life a desert, should not, after my long struggle with him, succeed at last in trampling his victim under his feet. I would do anything, everything, for the sake of defeating him— What could I do? I thought and thought, till I became desperate, and made a plunge into the abyss. And now, reader, I come to a period in my unhappy life, which I would gladly forget if I could. The remembrance fills me with sorrow and shame. It pains me to tell you of it. But I have promised to tell you the truth, and I will do it honestly, let it cost me what it may. I will not try to screen myself behind the plea of compulsion from a master— for it was not so. Neither can I plead ignorance or thoughtlessness. For years my master had done his utmost to pollute my mind with foul images, and to destroy the pure principles inculcated by my grandmother, and the good mistress of my childhood. The influences of slavery had had the same effect on me that they had had on other young girls. They had made me prematurely knowing, concerning the evil ways of the world. I knew what I did, and I did it with deliberate calculation." But, oh, ye happy women, whose purity has been sheltered from childhood, who have been free to choose the objects of your affection, whose homes are protected by law, do not judge the poor, desolate slave-girl too severely. If slavery had been abolished, I also could have married the man of my choice, I could have had a home shielded by the laws, and I should have been spared the painful task of confessing what I am now about to relate. But all my prospects had been blighted by slavery. I wanted to keep myself pure, and under the most adverse circumstances I tried hard to preserve my self-respect, but I was struggling alone in the powerful grasp of the demon slavery, and the monster proved too strong for me. I felt as if I was forsaken by God and man, as if all my efforts must be frustrated, and I became reckless in my despair. I have told you that Dr. Flint's persecutions and his wife's jealousy had given rise to some gossip in the neighborhood— Among others, it chanced that a white, unmarried gentleman had obtained some knowledge of the circumstances in which I was placed. He knew my grandmother, and often spoke to me in the street. He became interested for me, and asked questions about my master, which I answered in part. He expressed a great deal of sympathy, and a wish to aid me. He constantly sought opportunities to see me, and wrote to me frequently. I was a poor slave girl, only fifteen years old. So much attention from a superior person was, of course, flattering, for human nature is the same in all. I also felt grateful for his sympathy, and encouraged by his kind words. It seemed to me a great thing to have such a friend. By degrees, a more tender feeling crept into my heart. He was an educated and eloquent gentleman. Too eloquent, alas, for the poor slave-girl who trusted in him. Of course I saw whither all this was tending. I knew the impassable gulf between us— But to be an object of interest to a man who is not married, and who is not her master, is agreeable to the pride and feelings of a slave, if her miserable situation has left her any pride or sentiment. It seems less degrading to give oneself, than to submit to compulsion. There is something akin to freedom in having a lover who has no control over you, except that which he gains by kindness and attachment. A master may treat you as rudely as he pleases, and you dare not speak— Moreover, the wrong does not seem so great with an unmarried man, as with one who has a wife to be made unhappy. There may be sophistry in all this, but the condition of a slave confuses all principles of morality, and in fact renders the practice of them impossible. When I found that my master had actually begun to build the lonely cottage, other feelings mixed with those I have described. Revenge, and calculations of interest, were added to flattered vanity and sincere gratitude for kindness— I knew nothing would enrage Dr. Flint so much, as to know that I favoured another. And it was something to triumph over my tyrant, even in that small way. I thought he would revenge himself by selling me, and I was sure my friend, Mr. Sands, would buy me. He was a man of more generosity and feeling than my master, and I thought my freedom could be easily obtained from him. The crisis of my fate now came so near, that I was desperate. I shuddered to think of being the mother of children that should be owned by my old tyrant. I knew that as soon as a new fancy took him, his victims were sold far off to get rid of them, especially if they had children. I had seen several women sold, with babies at the breast. He never allowed his offspring by slaves to remain long in sight of himself and his wife. Of a man who was not my master, I could ask to have my children well supported, and in this case I felt confident I should obtain the boon. I also felt quite sure that they would be made free. With all these thoughts revolving in my mind, and seeing no other way of escaping the doom I so much dreaded, I made a headlong plunge. Pity me, and pardon me, O virtuous reader! You never knew what it is to be a slave, to be entirely unprotected by law or custom, to have the laws reduce you to the condition of a chattel, entirely subject to the will of another— You never exhausted your ingenuity in avoiding the snares, and eluding the power of a hated tyrant. You never shuddered at the sound of his footsteps, and trembled within hearing of his voice. I know I did wrong. No one can feel it more sensibly than I do. The painful and humiliating memory will haunt me to my dying day. Still, in looking back, calmly, on the events of my life, I feel that the slave woman ought not to be judged by the same standard as others.' The months passed on. I had many unhappy hours. I secretly mourned over the sorrow I was bringing on my grandmother, who had so tried to shield me from harm. I knew that I was the greatest comfort of her old age, and that it was a source of pride to her that I had not degraded myself, like most of the slaves. I wanted to confess to her that I was no longer worthy of her love, but I could not utter the dreaded words. As for Dr. Flint— I had a feeling of satisfaction and triumph in the thought of telling him. From time to time he told me of his intended arrangements, and I was silent. At last he came and told me the cottage was completed, and ordered me to go to it. I told him I would never enter it. He said, "'I have heard enough of such talk as that. You shall go, if you are carried by force, and you shall remain there.' I replied, "'I will never go there. In a few months I shall be a mother.' He stood and looked at me in dumb amazement, and left the house without a word. I thought I should be happy in my triumph over him. But now that the truth was out, and my relatives would hear of it, I felt wretched. Humble as were their circumstances, they had pride in my good character. Now how could I look at them in the face? My self-respect was gone. I had resolved that I would be virtuous, though I was a slave. I had said, "'Let the storm beat,' I will brave it till I die. And now, how humiliated I felt! I went to my grandmother. My lips moved to make confession, but the words stuck in my throat. I sat down in the shade of a tree at her door, and began to sew. I think she saw something unusual was the matter with me. The mother of slaves is very watchful. She knows there is no security for her children. After they have entered their teens, she lives in daily expectation of trouble. This leads to many questions. If the girl is of a sensitive nature, timidity keeps her from answering truthfully, and this well-meant course has a tendency to drive her from maternal counsels. Presently in came my mistress, like a madwoman, and accused me concerning her husband. My grandmother, whose suspicions had been previously awakened, believed what she said. She exclaimed, "'Oh, Linda, has it come to this? I had rather see you dead than to see you as you are now.' "'You are a disgrace to your dead mother.' She tore from my fingers my mother's wedding-ring and her silver thimble. "'Go away!' she exclaimed, "'and never come to my house again!' Her reproaches fell so hot and heavy that they left me no chance to answer. Bitter tears, such as the eyes never shed but once, were my only answer. I rose from my seat, but fell back again, sobbing. She did not speak to me, but the tears were running down her furrowed cheeks, "'and they scorched me like fire. "'She had always been so kind to me—so kind. "'How I longed to throw myself at her feet, and tell her all the truth. "'But she had ordered me to go, and never to come there again. "'After a few minutes I mustered strength and started to obey her. "'With what feelings did I now close that little gate, "'which I used to open with such an eager hand in my childhood? "'It closed upon me with a sound I never heard before.' Where could I go? I was afraid to return to my master's. I walked on recklessly, not caring where I went, or what would become of me. When I had gone four or five miles, fatigue compelled me to stop. I sat down on the stump of an old tree. The stars were shining through the boughs above me. How they mocked me, with their bright, calm light! The hours passed by, and as I sat there alone a chilliness and deadly sickness came over me. I sank on the ground. My mind was full of horrid thoughts. I prayed to die, but the prayer was not answered. At last, with great effort, I roused myself, and walked some distance further, to the house of a woman who had been a friend of my mother. When I told her why I was there, she spoke soothingly to me, but I could not be comforted. I thought I could bear my shame if I could only be reconciled to my grandmother. I longed to open my heart to her. I thought if she could know the real state of the case, and all I had been bearing for years, she would perhaps judge me less harshly. My friend advised me to send for her. I did so. But days of agonizing suspense passed before she came. Had she utterly forsaken me? No. She came at last. I knelt before her, and told her the things that had poisoned my life, how long I had been persecuted, that I saw no way of escape, and in an hour of extremity I had become desperate. She listened in silence. I told her I would bear anything, and do anything, if in time I had hopes of obtaining her forgiveness. I begged of her to pity me, for my dead mother's sake. And she did pity me. She did not say, I forgive you, but she looked at me lovingly, with her eyes full of tears. She laid her old hand gently on my head, and murmured, Poor child, poor child. End of chapter 10